This is an ABC podcast. Testing. One, two, three. Hello and welcome to The Pop Test, a quiz about science. I'm Andy Matthews, the joey in the pouch of the kangaroo that is this show's hosting team. And I am the rest of the Friends cast, also in the pouch, but being asked to move by the zookeepers, Alistair Tremblay-Birchall. So, Andy... What is today's episode about? Well, Alastair, birds do it, um, bees do it, uh, it's it's flight. Ah, I thought mm. you were going to say the topic was being crippled by mites. No. But okay then, Andy, what is flight? Well, I'll tell you what it is, Alastair, it's wrong, it's unnatural. But Andy, haven't humans long dreamed mm. of flying like the birds? Nah, yes, in the nude, to steal food off picnic tables? Uh, yes, yes, but sadly that is a dream that remains unrealised, at least without the aid of planes. Yes, of course, because the sad truth is that even when you're up in the air flying around, mm. if you want to get around that plane, you still have to use your legs and walk. Mm, yeah, like an idiot, yes. I mean, mm-hmm. really, if, if you want to go to the toilet on the plane, there should be a, a second smaller plane so that you can fly there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, but sadly, even in the skies, we are confined by our terrestrial past. And speaking of terrest, mm. let's put to rest the question of who our guests are today. Okay. <laughs> our first guest is the creator and star of the TV show, Why Are You Like This? Naomi Higgins. Thank Ooh. you so Hello, much. Naomi. Naomi, what would you say is the most important wing of a plane? Probably the back one, because mm. I don't want to pick favourites between the left and the right. I don't want to get mad at each other. Very good. And I feel like the back one really stands out to me. It probably doesn't get picked a lot, actually, so that's really great that you did that. You're yeah, a I real guess ally. different. And our second guest is Director of the Space Technology and Industry Institute at Swinburne University, Professor Alan Duffy. Um, Alan, huh. have you ever seen a plane? Like in, like in real life? <laughs> Not like a drawing. This isn't going to be a humble brag, but like I've seen a couple in my time. Yeah, yeah. I knew I knew he was a good book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, we're we're talking to the pros. <laughs> <laughs> and our final guest is the creator and star of the highly regarded web series mm. Hug the Sun. And we haven't discussed this, but my best friend Ben Russell. Correct. Thank you so much, Ben. Have you got a favorite pilot? And keep in mind, John Travolta listens to this show. It would have to be a toss-up between Harrison Ford and John Travolta. Uh, Harrison Ford, because he can crash a plane. Not a lot of people can fly it. Mm, takes, a, takes a man <laughs> to crash it. Takes a man to crash it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay, terrific. And remember, you are not playing against each other today, but together in team science. So grip tightly to as much armrest as you can steal as we co-pilot this puppy directly into a mountain of knowledge. Now, the history of human flight is short, sharp and sometimes explosive, making it exactly the kind of thing that you'd find difficult to take on a plane today. Nevertheless, let's try and wrap it up in a neat package and drop it off at the baggage counter in this, the history round. Early visionaries imagined humans being able to fly as easily as they could walk. Mm. 11th century monk Aylmer of Malmesbury achieved this result by strapping wings to himself, jumping off a tower and breaking his legs, Mm. rendering himself just as able to walk as he was to fly. The first controlled flight had to wait until the 1780s with the Montgolfier brothers' hot air balloon, made of paper and cloth and powered by rising air from a fire. But Ben... What important role did old boots and horse manure play in the history of flight? 
Uh, that was the catering on board, I believe. <laughs> oh, must have got better since the last time I was there. It was, yeah. a, de- it was a delicacy back then. <laughs> I, think I had that on and said in 1998. <laughs> How are they doing, by the way? Uh, I haven't checked in. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think my flights are still good. My tickets are still there. You got your points? Yeah, my points are doing good. Ben, the answer is the Montgolfier brothers didn't understand the physics of their invention. They thought stinky smoke itself had some lifting properties, so they threw old boots and horse manure onto the fire to create smellier smoke. Now, we know that hot air is less dense than cold air, and so a balloon filled with hot air will float on cold air. I guess like how hot people rise above the rest of us. And isn't it amazing that I can hear you from up here? (laughs) (laughs) British engineer George Cayley was the first to define the role of the four forces of flight, lift, weight, thrust and drag. Cayley built the first real glider in 1849, using it to launch a 10-year-old orphan boy across a valley. It was as big a breakthrough in aviation as it was in orphan distribution. He inspired (laughs) others to experiment with powered flight, often using steam engines and later Wilbur and Orville Wright with an internal combustion engine. But Naomi, what specifically did the Wright brothers first do on December the 17th, 1903? Okay, the way you phrase the question makes me want to say flew a plane. Mm. But I'm not going to fall into that trap. <laughs> I'm going to say this is when they entered their flop era of not flying a plane mm. and just kept failing a bunch. Because mm. if there's one thing we love more than seeing the first men to fly, mm. it's the first men to crash. Because mm. they wouldn't have got it on the first try. No, Surely people would have been going over to watch them and watch them fall out of the sky. Yeah, sure, yeah, the first fail videos. Yes. Mm. Mm. But like in real life. But in real life, yeah. Yeah. First fail (laughs) moments. I mean, there would have been a lot of fail moments. So is the answer (laughs) they were the first men to fail? Is that your answer? Entered their flop era is my final answer. Okay, well, uh, you're very close. And you Mm -hmm. were right to to think that the word specifically was important. But the correct answer was the first manned, sustained, controlled, powered, heavier-than-air flight with an external launch system. Uh, Others had done parts of this before. Uh, The Wrights were perhaps unique in the extent of their research, modelling and testing that they undertook and their innovations, particularly the control system and their use of banking to turn, were unique. Sometimes I feel like that you guys ask these questions in ways specifically for people to fail. Yeah, that's what we do. I mean, that is it. Yeah, we want you to give a dumb answer. The Wright brothers' aircraft got lift by moving the wings forward through air which might lead you to ask, could I get lift by just taking those wings, putting them on a pole, and spinning them around? Well, congratulations, you've just come up with the basic principle behind a helicopter, (gasps) the modern configuration of which was pioneered by Igor Sikorsky in 1939. But Alan, what should you do if your helicopter engine fails 12,000 meters in the air? The the natural inclination might be to, to begin to panic, but I think before you panic mm. at the impending death, you should you should actually be a little surprised because you're about three times higher than a helicopter can actually reach. Yeah. Aww. So you may ask yourself, how did, how I, did I get, I get here? here? Damn you! <laughs> <laughs> Damn you! Yeah. Um, I was really proud. This of that. is not my beautiful house. <laughs> well, this is not my beautiful wife. wife. This is a helicopter. <laughs> yeah. I've asked my dad uh, about this. He he used to fly helicopters until he he crashed one. Ah. Uh, very very badly. In <laughs> Sounds fact. like he yeah. knows what he's talking about. <laughs> one thing he told me, which which always blew my mind when I was younger, is that a as a helicopter um, 
uh, is falling, you've got an engine height, you disengage the rotor from the engine. Mm. As you fall, the air is now rushing by the blades and it actually begins ah. to spin up the blades in the opposite direction to normal, but it is producing some lift. It is actually slowing you down, so this is called auto-rotation. You're plummeting for a very long time from that kind of height. Um, you're, but a bit you're slower. A little bit slower. You hope <laughs> slow enough that allows you to survive. It's not a given, but you've got a chance. Yeah, you are absolutely correct. Um, the answer that we've got written down here is calmly engage the collective pitch lever, which allows helicopter pilots to use auto-rotation of the rotors to glide just like a plane. That's what Jean Boulet did when his engine stalled while setting the helicopter altitude record in 1972 and safely landed from 12 kilometers up with no power. Yeah. What? Yeah. That's ma- 12 kilometers. That's madness. Yeah, his engine stalled because he was so high up high and up, it was so sure. cold. And, uh, and that record stands to this day. So Nobody's that's, been- the to- that's the cruising altitude, like top, top cruising altitude for a commercial airliner. Mm. And we're not saying it's a good idea. <laughs> I just can't believe you reached it. Within 20 years of the first airplane flight, pilots were already running up against the speed limits on propeller planes. Flying higher could reduce drag because the air is thinner, but there's also less for propellers to push on to create thrust. Jet engines solve this problem by compressing air, mixing it with fuel and blasting it backwards, while the equal and opposite reaction forces shove the plane forwards. So, Naomi, what is the most effective creep-resistant material? Oh, I know this one. Mm. Glasses. Yeah. <laughs> because, okay, if you've ever seen a rom-com, you know, yeah. it's about a teenage girl, she's a nerd, and then she takes her glasses off, mm. and it's like, wow, she's a different person. Everyone makes fun of those movies. They're like, oh, what, just because she took her glasses off. But I have a friend, and she's tall, and she's pretty, and she's blonde. She's always complaining to me about getting harassed on the street. Mm. Never happens to me. What did I do wrong? Turns out she went to the optometrist, got glasses... Never got harassed again. It mm. really is that easy. That's why Andy, Al, and myself are wearing glasses right now. Yeah. It just, really grounds us. Otherwise, she, yeah. <laughs> Since we got married, it's just we can't, we can't be fending off <laughs> yeah. advances at all times. I'd say that the, the only problem with that is that it's, it's such a powerful effect that when I go to actually try on glasses in the, in the optometrist, whenever I take a pair of glasses off the little shelf, I fall in love with the shelf. Yeah, yeah, you got to close your eyes when you're. It's yeah, very, exactly. It's very it's dangerous a real, it's a place. Real danger, real danger. <laughs> but yeah. Andy does a lot of woodworking, so that <laughs> yeah, really... that's true. Yeah, I um, love he, a good grain. <laughs> he looks at a shelf and he says, "I can fix you." <laughs> <laughs> Did I get it right? Uh, close. Creep yes. is a metal fatigue that affects jet engine parts at high temperatures. So uh, higher temperatures make the engines more efficient but shorter-lived and with a worrying tendency to suddenly tear themselves to pieces and explode. This has driven the development of creep-resistant materials like uh, fancy super alloys of copper, nickel and iron that can resist the 1,000 degree plus temperatures in modern jet engines. But you're right, they should also experiment with putting glasses on the yeah, plane. Yeah, so I think I should get half a point. Yeah, we would have also that. accepted the sisterhood. Mm. <laughs> I'm an ally and I try, try to promote it everywhere I can. And you know? an alloy. And an a alloy. A super alloy. A super alloy. Forget it. <laughs> the first solid-fueled rocket was a bamboo tube full of gunpowder used to scare the emperor's mother in 13th century China. And if you'd told anyone watching that day that a man would one day ride one of those to the moon, they would have told you to blow it out your ass. Mm. <laughs> 
A criticism that perfectly describes the physics of the rocket principle, which remains unchanged to this day. Mm. But Alan, <laughs> what can you do with a steam-powered pigeon? So you, perhaps with a steam-powered pigeon, might be able to scare the people or, or blow the minds of people in ancient Greece. Am I getting closer? <laughs> I think you're getting really damn close. You're, you're getting so hot, I'm worried that you're a steam-powered pigeon. <laughs> I bet you say that to all the professors. <laughs> this, Guys, I this, think Alan's cooking. <laughs> um, you are absolutely correct. You can mystify and amuse the citizens of Tarentum. In 400 BC, a Greek named Archytas did just this with a pigeon made of wood suspended on wires, heating water inside the pigeon, created steam, which was pushed backwards, propelling the bird forwards via the action-reaction principle, and Archytas' pigeon was considered the first rocket, but also considered the first robot. Rockets and jets pushed planes faster and faster, but there was one limit they couldn't overcome. Approaching the sound barrier at 343 metres per second, where shockwaves, vibrations and loss of control would literally shake a plane to pieces. And while it had been broken already by bullwhips, bullets and, some say, the tail of a diplodocus, it took until 1947 for Chuck Yeager in the Bell X-1 to pass Mach 1 in a plane. But Ben, mm. what did humanity learn from Operation Bongo 2? Uh, I've seen this one. Uh, the old general learned how to love again, mm. and the daughter, uh, she learned how to trust again. And they together helped uh, the elephant return back to the wild. That's Aww. right, yeah. yeah. In, in, yeah. in Australia, it was released as uh, How Ulysses S. Grant Got His Groove Back. Is that right? <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. I've got my points barrel right here. Ben. Let's just check the answers and see how we're going. Yeah. Um, well, the answer was we learned from Operation Bongo 2 that we may never have supersonic passenger flights over land. So oh, no. I'm sorry. I think, uh, I think um, I, we were watching a different film. <laughs> <laughs> when planes travel past the speed of sound, they create a continuous sonic boom that sweeps across the ground behind them. And in 1964, NASA began... Operation Bongo 2 over Oklahoma City, which created eight sonic booms per day for six months to see how people could live with them. Uh, 15,000 complaints, a class action lawsuit, and the cancellation of the supersonic Boeing 2707 later, it seems that the answer is reluctantly. Reports indicate that horses and turkeys had also died or gone insane although it's not clear how you can tell whether a turkey has actually gone insane. <laughs> the resident said it was a welcome distraction from living in Oklahoma <laughs> City. <laughs> and at the end of round one, your team, Team Science, is on four points. Yes. Which, which means you can still win. Mm. Yes. Thank goodness. Are we against pseudoscience? You're against ignorance. <laughs> oh, great. Mm. Yeah. And now on to round two. Now, we don't pretend to have all the answers, but we're happy to pretend that our guests do by asking them to give us their best guess. And then we will correct them because we have all the answers. This round is called How Do Whales Work? So, Naomi. Oh, no. In your opinion, 
What is the most unrealistic part of the story of Icarus? As a reminder, as a reminder, the story is that Icarus's father, Daedalus, made wings of feathers and wax so they could wear them on their arms and fly. Mm. But Daedalus warned Icarus that if he flew too near the sun, the wings would melt and then Icarus did and then he died. Which part of that mm-hmm. is not very believable? A lot of the Greek stuff, it's like, you know... It's like Marvel movies. They're not really dead. Yeah, bring them back. They might be back, you know. Yeah. Who knows? Caught onto, yeah. a, onto a root or something. Yeah, it could be. Was there an Icarus revival movie? Yeah, that we sounds saw? great, though. We, the Icarus revival? Yeah, no, God. it's Icarus colon revival. Oh, I, I, it actually the Icarus colon revival sounds like a sort of a, a gut drink, a gut health yeah. drink. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to say um, the idea of just a father-son activity. I mm. would say the likelihood of that has improved over time. But when did this happen? Uh, ancient ancient Greece. Greece. That's a while ago. Yeah. I'm going to say I don't think dads were that involved back then. Even today, that kind of a craft activity with the kids would send me to the edge. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid the answer was... Uh, that according to MIT, the arms and chest of a human do not have anywhere near enough muscle mass to achieve the necessary lift by flapping their wings like a bird. Uh, Also, some engineers have calculated that the wax would likely have melted at low altitudes anyway, and lower temperatures higher up would have actually stopped the wax from melting. So the real problem is that Icarus didn't fly high enough. And Uh. if the story does have a moral, it's that Icarus felt the need to act out to get his dad's attention. And so the son that Daedalus was afraid to get close to was his own son, Icarus. Why do you reckon it is harder to make a full-size aeroplane than a model one? You, you make a little model one, you gotta, you got to make it big. you got to make it up more. you got to get more of that. you got to make it at least, you know, 10 to 20 times depending on the model. And I don't even know if that model's to scale. Mm. Okay, so that's going to take time, so it's harder. Mm. Interesting. Okay, time equals money. <laughs> can I, can okay. I buzz in and end this? Yeah. <laughs> please, please. No, I think I am correct. <laughs> now, because we're getting too much good stuff, <laughs> I'm going to ask Alan just to hear what he had to say to what, with his with his butt in. Yeah, no. By the way, I think Ben's onto something. Uh, it's not right, but he's he's you know he's trying. Thank yeah. you. Is it the volume <laughs> area? Ratio. So, in other words, mm-hmm. the bigger you make it, the volume grows much uh, uh, more quickly than the area. The volume is the weight. That's just the mass of the object. The area is what's providing lift. So, in other words, you're getting heavier, but the amount of uh, lift you're gaining from your size is, relatively speaking, decreasing. So, you have to go faster. Alan, you're just repeating what Ben said. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, I will say that there was correctness in both. I would say that while while Ben's idea that larger materials are, are, are probably more expensive to yeah. acquire and and move around, and exactly. you probably need more people to uh, to uh, you know to, to to put them together. Alan's idea that the uh, that the about well, what he was describing was the square cube law. That when you make something bigger by a factor X, the surface area increases by X squared, but the volume and weight increase by X cubed. This means that you get less lift, which comes from surface area relative to the weight, making it harder to take off. Okay, and finally, Alan, what does your gut tell you keeps a plane in the air? As you go in the plane and go higher, uh, your guts will feel like they're about to explode uh, as the gas within is not being pushed by the, the gas, the air around in the cabin as, as greatly because as you travel up to higher altitudes, the pressure is dropping. So that force of the air around you is less. That 
you can do in reverse. If you have your little water bottle that they give you, you empty it when you're at the highest altitude, you seal it with that less dense air, the lower pressure, and then you fly down and you land and your little bottle will be crushed up. So mm. the opposite's happening. Higher pressure on the ground, lower pressure on the top. That is the difference of pressure that is happening across the wing that is providing the lift. So in other <gasps> words, there's greater pressure below the wing and the curved surface on the top of the wing forces air to rush over more quickly, lowering the pressure. This is Bernoulli force. This will give you your buoyancy. Except that's not true. Oh. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that's the answer. Oh, wait, am oh, I getting geez. bonus points? Yeah. Sick. This is what I love to teach in my physics 101 class because it's a great principle. It sounds great. It's super complex. It's unnecessary. It goes back, as all correct things do, to Newton. The, the principle of, of action-reaction, the wing is being pushed through the air. That's the force of your engine pushing your wing through the air. And in return, the air is pushing back on the wing. So long as you get the angle of attack right, you're going to get pushed up. Mm. You're absolutely uh, correct, Alan. And, and in fact, there's still amazingly significant debate about this. And in 2020, Scientific American published a very reassuring article called No One Can Explain Why Planes Stay in the Air. <laughs> but as aviation journalist Roger Long says, wings move air down and react by being pushed up. That's what makes lift and all the rest is just interesting details. And at the end of that round, Team Science is on 10 points. Yes. Ooh. Oh, you guys are doing great. And finally, it's time for a speed round, but because it's plummeting us towards the end of the show, we call it the terminal velocity round. Okay, question one. When might your doctor prescribe you a terrifying plane flight? <laughs> when he's a jerk? Mm. When he hates you? You're a psychopath, doctor? Oh, I know. Damn. When you're just feeling... Like apathetic about life, but you don't, you don't, you can't not motivated to make a change. Mm. And then you have a near death experience and you have all this new like vim and vigor for your life. Naomi, I am going to give you the points. Terrific yes. answer. 100 years ago, flight was still new enough that people weren't sure what it was for yet. After one doctor had success terrifying a patient who had lost his ability to speak into speaking again, <gasps> many doctors started to wonder what else it could do, and they tried it on a bunch of things, including uh, restoring hearing as well. Genuinely was that they thought a lot of things are psychosomatic, will just take people's minds off it by sending them up in, like, they would send them up with stunt flyers. So Charles Lindbergh, famous aviator, he had on his business card that he did hearing flights or deaf flights as well. So that was just, people would send their deaf kids up in a plane to see, just, you know, might scare the deafness out of them. And, uh, yeah. And did oh. it work? I don't think so. <laughs> no. <laughs> so the sense I flew to Queensland and it got rid of my rumours. <laughs> <laughs> Question two. What do you call a plane with no moving parts? On the ground. Mm. <laughs> Close. <laughs> Stopped. An ion plane is one that uses a totally new system of propulsion already used in satellites that uses electricity to accelerate air molecules backwards and push the plane forward. A working model was made in 2018 by MIT, totally silent and environmentally friendly. There are still significant barriers to them being practical. Define moving. It's flying through the air. No, but no moving parts. It depends what reference frame you're in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you're, Do you if, mean to the naked eye? No. I've got news for you, Alice. Electricity is actually, things are moving. <gasps> Whoa. Just go Electron, Let me check the sheet. 
Uh, this sheet sort of can, you know, I've used this sheet to sort of tell a professor that they were wrong. Uh-huh. Um, so I guess I have to tell you. But are you willing to stand you, up to me? Yeah, <laughs> a person with more confidence than me. Um, I mean, that you all have more confidence than me. Um, hey, not Andy. It's true. <laughs> oh, that's great. Question three, how do you pronounce helicopter? Oh my, I just, I don't want to go near this, but I'm going to jump on this hand grenade. Uh, helicopter? Correct. <laughs> Although wow. it comes from the Greek helix, meaning spiral, and huh. pteron, meaning wing, as in pterodactyl, which would mean it should be pronounced helicopter. But you're right that the way that we do pronounce it is, is, is as you say, helicopter. Andy, you would wow. be an absolute nightmare to get stuck with at a party. Can I just say... Can I, I just have a say, nightmare to be stuck with anywhere, man. <laughs> That's why we have to pay you to be here. <laughs> Thank you. All right, so I think we've got to end the show. Yeah, yeah we got to do that. Okay, which brings us to the end of the show. And Team Science, you are on 16 points, hey! which means you win. Congratulations. Thank you to Naomi, Ben, and Alan. And until next time, remember... It was the sinking of the Titanic that provided the impetus for massive air travel that is warming the globe and destroying the icebergs so they only have themselves to blame. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.